2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Carol Nakanoff and Dr. Julie Novkov to discuss their new book, American by Birth: Wong Kim Ark and the Battle for Citizenship, published by the University Press of Kansas in 2021. All nations make rules through their constitutions, legislatures, bureaucratic practices about who counts as a citizen. American by birth examines the role of the Supreme Court, particularly a ruling from 1898 that is still precedent today. Wong Kim Ark versus United States interpreted the language of the 14th Amendment to answer whether a man born in the United States, Wong Kim Ark, was a citizen. Court ruled in favor of Wong Kim Ark, clarifying that the 14th Amendment extends to children of immigrants who were born in the United States. Using the work of legal scholars, political scientists, and historians, the book provides an extended biography of Wong Kim Ark and the historic 1898 landmark case, but also a biography of U.S. citizenship from the colonies to the present. American by Birth concludes with an impressive chapter that contextualizes birthright citizenship globally and within the context of American politics and scholarly debates, with an emphasis on the vulnerability of birthright citizenship to indirect and direct change. Dr. Julie L. Novkov is professor of political science and women's gender and sexuality studies and interim dean of Rockefeller College at the University of Albany, SUNY. She's the author of Racial Union, Law, Intimacy, and the White State in Alabama, 1865-1954 to from the University of Michigan Press. Dr. Carol Nakanoff is Richter Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Swarthmore College. She's the author of The Fictional Republic, Horatio Alger, and the American Political Discourse from Oxford. They are also co-editors of Stating the Family, New Directions in the Study of American Politics from Kansas and 2020, and also co-authors of State Building from the Margins, Between Reconstruction and the New Deal, from the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2014. I'm delighted to welcome both of them to the New Bucks Network.
2: Thanks so much. We're very happy to be here. Thank you, Susan. You're welcome. So first, tell me a little bit about the
0: origin story of this book. Uh, How did you come to write it, and how did you come
2: to write it
3: together? Shall I
2: start? Absolutely. But you have to make sure you blame David Congdon I, for this. I will
3: blame uh, our our wonderful editor, David Congdon, uh, at Kansas, uh, who asked us to write this book. Uh, it had long been a, a dream of his to have uh, a book on Wong Kim Ark in his series uh, at Kansas on landmark law cases and American society. It did seem to be a gaping hole. Um, he asked us because we had written a couple of pieces, um, on Chinese women, children, and citizenship, um, using a database of habeas cases, uh, from West Coast, uh, district and, um, uh, district courts. And, um, so we agreed to do it and, um, You can talk about why we write together. Uh,
2: Well, we write together, I think, because we're terrific partners. Uh, We had been traveling in the same circles and conferences for for quite a while and decided that we might be able to collaborate fruitfully uh, to develop uh, an edited volume. And we got some people together who were working on questions of state building during the period between the the end of the Civil War and through the Progressive Era, an era that we've both written about independently. And we enjoyed working together so much that we started working not just as co-editors but as co-authors on this project involving Chinese women and children and their struggles uh, to get into and remain in the United States. Um, And the rest, uh, as they say, is history.
0: Well, thanks. So we have a podcast called Co-Authored on the New Books Network. And so I'll just ask you one question. So does one of you write a chapter and the other pushes in? Do you write it simultaneously? Do you have like a a quick version of your process to share with other co-authors, aspiring
3: co-authors out there? Uh, We we do a division of labor. Uh, And sometimes it may be chapter by chapter or sometimes maybe sections of chapters. Uh, depending on our own, uh, area of, uh, expertise or comfort. Julie has a law degree. I teach law, but I don't have a law degree. Um, and so one will draft and then the other will edit and add or subtract. And, um, uh, no one seems to mind when the other, uh, um, I mean, I find it very helpful to write with somebody else. I found it very liberating. Um, but I actually can't tell anymore which <laughs> voice I'm hearing, whether it's Julie or myself.
2: The Same thing. We, I get to the point after we've been through multiple iterations, we go back and forth a lot with drafts. But after about the third time back and forth, I cannot tell what I've written and what yeah. Carol has yeah. written. Well, Every- actually, importantly, that shows
0: in the, in, for the reader, because uh, sometimes co-authored books and, you know, sometimes the authors tell me, well, I wrote two and he wrote five. And and actually, I can hear that. What, what's really fabulous about this book is the consistency of the voice. And we'll talk about it later, but you add a third author for the last chapter as well. And again, the voice is seamless throughout. It's beautiful. It's a beautifully written book. Yeah.
3: My, my, uh, student, uh, Merit Weick, um, did a lot of research for, uh, for us for that last chapter and some on the Wong Kim Ark biography chapter. Um, and, uh, every now and then I'll find a word that I know I don't use very often. And I said, Oh, Julie must've written that sentence, but, uh,
0: well, the the book is complicated, and we will not be able to do it complete justice in the time that we have. But we're gonna we're gonna give it a shot here. So you begin by really trying to tell us how we get to um, the Fourteenth Amendment, or the the of, of how it is that we can we understand citizenship in the United States. So you, you try to lay out those foundations uh, early on, so that. Uh, And and as I see it, by the time you get to the chapter of like, who is Wong Kim Ark, in fact, all of this is in Wong Kim Ark, which is one of the structures of the book that I just love so much. So tell me a little bit about the foundations of American citizenship, what it is that was there that is built upon um, by the court by the time we get there. So what does citizenship look like in the United States? What are the basics?
2: Well, it's really fascinating because I think there are two stories you can tell about citizenship in the United States in the antebellum era. There is one story that's rooted in English common law, going all the way back to Calvin's case, and that is the story of birthright citizenship, the idea that if you are born within the geographic sovereignty of the United States, you're entitled to citizenship. And this was really important in a a nation that saw itself as growing and building through immigration um, and settler peoplehood. So you wanted to have people coming over, you wanted uh, them to have access to citizenship, citizenship, and you wanted their children to have access to citizenship. But at the same time, there were real questions about how this principle was gonna transfer with regard to people who were not considered to be white. Uh, so, Native Americans did not have access to c- citizenship on these terms at all. Um, uh, slaves obviously didn't have access to citizenship. And free blacks, free, free black persons, had to struggle to get access to citizenship in states that recognized their status. Um, so, there Both of these things are kind of happening, developing at the same time, uh, and you you don't have a clear answer to how this tension is going to play out until you get a a rather clear answer in Dred Scott versus Sanford, which denies citizenship to uh, individuals of African descent.
0: One of the things I want to point out about the structure of the book is that All of these cases, Calvin's case, dates, um, particular acts that were passed, treaties, are beautifully, beautifully outlined in a different color in a box so that as you're reading, uh, if you're a scholar, it's great because you can pull those right out so that you have beautiful citations. And if you're unfamiliar with the particular laws, they're there to ground you. So that was just a beautiful element of the book that um, that, that I
3: wanna point out. Carol, did you wanna add something about the sort of origins here? I, I'm, I'm letting Julie take that question, but I would like to point out that um, there are two versions of this book. Um, the one we have right now uh, is the more considered the more academic or scholarly version with the footnotes. Um, and it will look a little bit differently um, in the landmark, uh, law cases, an American society paperback, uh, that will come out, uh, at the end of the year or right at the beginning of, of next year. Uh, the text boxes that you see that you just referred to are probably going to be moved. They're probably in an index, if I remember correctly now. And, um, uh, all the footnotes are stripped out, and instead there's a bibliographic essay, because that version is really designed for students, student use.
0: Well, I, I would say to listeners that um, I would assign this book to students as is. You uh, know, potentially in a in a con law class, I think it's unbelievably clearly written, and, and it almost reads at sometimes like a beach book in that it's it's compelling. Because of the drama that you create leading into the case, so in, it it becomes very much like a courtroom drama, though we don't have a courtroom. Or you know, you you make that happen. So I I, I appreciate that there's going to be this second edition, and I think that could be really really helpful for for freshmen and sophomores. But but as is, this is a really accessible book for anybody who is a serious reader or or any undergraduate. I, it's just beautifully organized. Uh, let me move us to. Uh, Julie mentioned the racialized quality of so many of the early decisions and and the impetuses for some of the laws in the first place of the of, of the ability to of the the attempt to figure out who is a citizen, but uh, not necessarily in a neutral way. And the, and the second chapter is really looking at the creation of legal regimes that that shape everything that shape citizenship that shape Marriage that shape procreation, women's citizenship. And so, um, say a little bit about that chapter and the ways in which law makes citizenship.
2: Sure, uh, well there's a couple of processes going on. Um, in the Constitution, of course, uh, Congress is given the responsibility for coming up with a method for naturalizing citizens, um, making people who have come to the United States citizens. And they, they do so at the first available opportunity. And when they do that, they write a statute that sets up a process accessible only to white persons. So that shapes how immigrants can become citizens and defines who is going to be eligible Um, But birthright citizenship, of course, takes place more through legal decision-making. And over the course of the first 30 or so years of the United States' existence, the courts are grappling with this and defining the boundaries of birthright citizenship very, very liberally, um, going to the point even of saying that A child who is born in the United States, leaves as a very young person, never returns, is still entitled to birthright citizenship. Um, But as you mentioned, uh, this process is much more vexed uh, for for racial minorities, particularly for uh, free black individuals who are citizens in some places, quasi-citizens in others, not really citizens in some other places, Uh, Martha Jones has a wonderful book um, talking about how this uh, dynamic unfolded um, on on the local level. And and she finds that uh, uh, free black people were trying to use the law to achieve recognition of their citizenship within this uh, very repressive regime. And they often had some surprising successes, uh, uh, largely because the law had to acknowledge them as independent agents uh, in some form if it was going to be capable of, of settling disputes. Um, I would
3: add that uh, in in the pre-Civil War years, um, there was a lot of um, activity by states in regulating uh, uh, immigration and naturalization. Uh, They would try to keep people out, not only through quarantine measures, but head taxes. And uh, uh, there were some formative uh, court cases uh, that began to point to Congress as having uh, the authority over um, uh, immigration, but that really wasn't settled until uh, roughly the 1870s, when the states were told in 1875 and 76, you cannot regulate immigration. Uh, This is Congress's job. And then even so, uh, some states were um, admitting people to citizenship, uh, offering Chinese... uh, born in the state uh, a passport or naturalizing. And the State Department could say, uh, no, you don't, you can't do that, and, and rescinding it. Um, because the passport regime isn't really established uh, in the 19th century. That was a great part of
0: the book. I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, I think a lot of people are very, very familiar uh, with some of the immigration stories in the United States and less familiar with Chinese immigration, which you know, begins in the 1850s. Uh, Chinese, m- most almost exclusively men, come to the United States from Guangdong, and they are mining, they are um, building the railroads. There's a fabulous book that we did by Gordon H. Chang on the building mm-hmm. of the railroads, Ghost of Gold, Gold Mountain. Um, t- tell us a little bit, about how Chinese immigration, in particular, Julie, I think you've sort of already, re- you know, sort of referred to this about about race and who gets to count as white. Why is it that Chinese immigration is 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 such a a, 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 a third rail here? Why why is it provoking so 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 much action, so many rules and um,
3: cases? Before I answer it, I want to point out there's another really really good book that came out this year and that I just had the um, privilege to review for the Journal of American History by May and uh, Guy, The Chinese Question: The Gold Rushes and Global Politics, and it looks at South Africa, Australia, and the U.S. Um, and it's it's absolutely fantastic. It it I mean the Chinese. Are agents in, in this book. And um, uh, I, I think you learn a lot about uh, the processes of migration and uh, early uh, Chinese entry into mining before they really get pushed out by state laws and vigilantes and so on. Um, so uh, there are push and pull factors, first of all. Um, uh, Julie can talk about some of the Push factors, uh, but um, it, it is true that the gold rush is one uh, of the pull factors. Um, many Chinese uh, uh, did try to state claims, but uh, many others were supplying provisions. Um, Wang Kimark himself worked as a cook uh, at, at a mining camp when he was starting at around age 11. Um, Wang Kimark's parents ran uh, a butcher shop and provision shop. Uh, It's unclear whether the father had a stake in ownership. Uh, Amanda Frost, in a very nice uh, new book called um, You Are Not American, Citizenship Stripping from Dred Scott to the Dreamers, uh, has a nice chapter on Wong Kimark and uh, his saga. And um, she says that uh, the father was part owner, uh, but California made it increasingly difficult for the Chinese to own businesses. And certainly by the time that Wang Qimark was old enough to have thought about such a thing, it was not possible. Um, I'm going to let Julie speak.
2: Sure. Um, so on the push side, you had a lot of economic disruption uh, and uh, some political disruption in Guangdong which created incentives for many Chinese in that region to try to exit, uh, to go to places where uh, the men could go, uh, establish themselves economically, and then provide support for their families. This tied in really effectively with the American need for cheap, uh, docile labor, as they perceived it. So you had this conjunction working very effectively to pull a large number, again mostly men, uh, from Guangdong to the west coast to do a lot of this labor. Uh, But of course this then provokes both uh, labor protectivism and racialized resistance to the immigration that was taking place. Uh, And you see the rise of anti-immigration political forces at first really um, concentrated in the Democratic Party but then expanding um, to be uh, really a regional phenomenon and uh, uh, people are are fighting uh, to exclude and resist Chinese immigration in a lot of different formats. You see political resistance leading to attempts to legislate on the state level Uh, which leads to some conflicts over how much states can do versus Congress. Uh, When the Supreme Court makes it clear that the states don't have the power to regulate immigration independently, then the political pressure moves to Congress and you see a lot of pressure uh, to get Congress to legislate against Chinese immigration and restrict it. But at the same time, you see political violence exercised against Chinese immigrants. There's a great book by Beth Lou Williams entitled The Chinese Must Go that that shows the, the effect of, of this concentrated, focused wave of political violence that is intended to encourage the Chinese to leave, um, to leave the areas where they are and ultimately to leave the United States.
3: Carol? Yes, I forgot to uh, add that one of the real... Um drivers, uh, was the sense that the Chinese were not assimilable. Um, there was a sense that they were a moral threat, uh, moral and economic threat. Um, uh, labor felt that they were un they believed, and this was as, um, uh, and Guy points out, this was a myth. Uh, they believed they were unfree labor, that they were brought here, uh, um, by force or uh, that were very much akin to slavery. And we had just gotten rid of slavery and we didn't want unfree labor competing unfairly with free labor. Um, There was a sense that the Chinese were, uh, you know, stereotyped as, you know, smoking opium and engaged in uh, polygamy and prostitution and all sorts of other perversions and, They stuck to themselves. Well, they stuck to themselves partly because they weren't allowed to live anywhere else. But they were seen as, um, unlike Korean Americans who were generally uh, wore Western dress, converted to Christianity, these people were seen as a people apart. Um, So I wanted to, to add that little bit. And,
0: and and as a people apart, there are these laws passed primarily on the West Coast and the places where um, the Chinese had come to perform all of this different kinds of labor and establish businesses, increasingly independent businesses. There's hostility towards them. There are ordinances passed about laundries that are, de- that are, are applied in a way that is uh, racial, and the Supreme Court calls out this. There's a series of cases that you beautifully describe that, that bring us to this place. A, a lot of people are very familiar with the NAACP's uh, legal defense and the creation of precedents leading to uh, Brown versus Board of Education's overturn. Of Plessy v. Ferguson. I don't think they're as familiar with the six companies and the kind of legal defense that was put up for Chinese individuals. So before we go to, to Wang Kim Ark and his case, just say a little bit about these cases that come before and the role of the Chinese community in, in providing r- remarkably elite defense and careful strategies and resources so that the Chinese could be successful in court. They didn't have political power to because they didn't have the vote to lean on legislatures, so they were they were dependent upon the courts.
3: But how how did they how did they make use of that resource? I think, I think Julie should talk about the cases, and I can say a bit about the, the lawyers and that legal mobilization.
2: Yeah, I mean the cases. It's it's pretty straightforward. They have uh, the best lawyers in the business and they are fighting a a concentrated dedicated legal campaign that is both focused on winning individual victories and enabling Chinese who have been detained to get release and come into the country through the mechanism of habeas corpus, Um, but at the same time they are looking for ideal cases to litigate all the way up through the appeals process so that they can challenge uh, policies um, and congressional regulation at the Supreme Court level hoping to get the most restrictive laws um, either limited or overturned. So it's, it's a comprehensive, uh, very large uh, litigation campaign that at one point really swamps the Ninth Circuit with cases, you, judges complaining that you, they're, they're having to work late nights to manage all of the individual habeas claims that they are hearing.
3: Um, It's it's very interesting that there seem to be a lot of different motives that draw lawyers to this case. These cases, um, the Chinese six companies um, from the 1880s virtually always had uh, a lawyer on retainer uh, for the Chinese, at, at least one. Uh, And um, it was lucrative business uh, at the time, but it was also extremely unpopular business. Um, One of the lawyers who helped Wong Kim Ark uh, later with uh, um, one of, when he had to fill out departure papers um, actually got disbarred. um, And it seems to be based on hostility to the Chinese work that they were doing. But Leland Stanford, and you know uh, was was some of his lawyers were involved. The steamship companies that brought the Chinese to America to to do work, to do the railroad road work uh, and so on were involved. and it was in their economic interest to try to defend to get these people landed because if they were rejected, they had to be sent home at the expense of the steamship company i.e. I, of those who brought them there too. Um, so Wong Kim Ark himself had ex, uh, access to extraordinary legal talent. Some of these p- people had served in um, national uh, uh, presidential administrations. They, some of them had been senators and governors and, and, and whatnot, but they were prominent, many of them were prominent people. Uh, and so uh, this was a highly organized and mobilized uh, effort. Uh, the six companies even tried to challenge the 1892 Geary Act in court. It backfired on them, but they thought that they could mobilize that challenge.
2: There, there is a recent article. I cannot, for the life of me, find it at the moment. But uh, somebody has has recently looked at. These lawyers and their litigation strategies um, more comprehensively. We'll get it into the show
0: notes, Julie. Don't okay. don't look for it now. We'll get it in though, and we'll get a link to to it so everybody can find it. Uh, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about who Wang Kim Ark was. You, you've already said a little bit about his parents, but but as you talk about him, you talk about him as having a transnational life. And you also talk to him as somebody caught in the need for documentation. And these are two things that you really focus on in the chapter about about his life. And I was wondering if you could just
3: unpack uh, both of those just a little bit. Because uh, most women uh, not only did not, but could not uh, come to the United States um, under the uh, increasingly harsh regime, beginning with the Page Act in 18. 75, where any woman traveling by herself would have been presumed a prostitute, and many of them even traveling with a male companion would be assumed to be coming under false pretenses. Um, any Chinese male uh, who wanted to start a family in the United uh, wanted to start a family, uh, pretty much had to go to China to find an arranged marriage. And this was a very common pattern it must have been expensive and it certainly took a lot of time to do but the pattern that wang Ki-Mark followed of going to china every few years to see a, a wife who was clearly living with his parents um and raising uh, uh their their children uh was a very very common pattern um the uh Problem, of course, was and he and then the men would send money home when they could. Um, one of the reasons his first and legitimate son, for sure, uh, was barred entry into the United States, is because one of the questions the immigration officials asked both father and son separately was how much money or what was the denomination of notes uh, of the money that Won Kimark had sent to his mother when the boy was like six. And the boy got it wrong, apparently, uh, or at least their answers diverged. And that was one of some fairly, in my view, insignificant responses that uh, kept that boy from, when then a man from ever landing. Um, the um, fact is, is that uh, Wong Kim Ark and other Chinese, especially laborers, of course, merchants also needed some documentation, but um, there was an assumption that we wanted merchants in the United States and merchants' wives got to come too. Um, but every time Wang Kim went to China, he had to fill out an application of alleged American citizenship of the Chinese race for pre-investigation of status. He had to get a photo taken He had to have witnesses. Uh, Increasingly, those witnesses had to be white witnesses. Um, And so he would get, he would have to present that. He would have, when he came back, uh, that document would supposedly um, provide him access to entry. Um, In addition to, so nobody else had to carry that kind of documentation.
0: And just to, to, not to interrupt you, Carol, but you, what is really wonderful about the book is the way the cover and the images in the book underline everything that you just say, because we, you have the documents, you have those photographs, you mark the changes in his hair and his dress. You can see the languages that have to be represented, who has to be brought to sign these documents. It's It's a The book is so well constructed because of the sort of unity of the images and the claims that you are making. So I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's just such a wonderful part about this book.
3: The one other document we have a picture of, and which really stunned me, was that even though he had won his Supreme Court case some 14 years earlier, 15 years earlier, he had to get a certificate of identity and carry it with him at all times, just like any other Chinese person in the United States who was not a citizen and if he didn't have that paper on him he could be rounded up and deported at any time and
0: and the precarity of a piece of paper so like right now we don't have pieces of paper we have photographs of things and did you take a did you take a picture of your vaccine card etc but this is a piece of paper that he's carrying around and 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 that survived for you to take uh, to reproduce in the book it's 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 really emotional, actually, to think about that idea of carrying that piece of paper.
3: On that issue of precarity uh, with the San Francisco fire, uh, ironically, it made it somewhat easier for Chinese to claim to have been born in the United States because the documents
1: were destroyed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Throughout the book, you talk very sensitively about gender, and there isn't a chapter on gender, but I just want to kind of, uh, be- before we go into the case, uh, highlight the extent to which citizenship laws were different for men and women. And uh, that if a man married a woman who was not a US citizen, she could become a citizen. But a woman, an American woman who married a non-American lost her citizenship. And you're constantly weaving that in to, to the narrative, the The extent to which procreation, for example, Wang King Ark's procreation has to take place in China because he can't, over uh, his wife, and his wife can't immigrate because she's not a merchant, because she doesn't have these, quote unquote, desirable characteristics that the law has set up. And I just want to highlight that this is a book in which gender is mainstream, gender is on every page. It's not not a separate chapter. It's something that's woven through. It reflects the amazing work you've done in previous books, but I want to highlight that for listeners as well. All right, let's turn to the case. Um, one of the things, as I said earlier, that I love about the book is that by the time you get to who is Wang Kim Ark, you realize that Wang Kim Ark is the perfect representative of, of tens of thousands of Chinese that have come. And, and I, I loved that um, and how you made that happen uh, in these very complicated stories all come together in him. And the complicated precedents and the earlier laws also come together in him because all of those precedents are at play now before the Supreme Court and all of those laws are the context in which they're deciding. So we have a majority opinion, we have a dissent. They are both very spirited. They are both arguing that they are in fact uh, representative of um, of text and of um, legislative intent in the 14th Amendment. Tell us a little bit about what's in the majority opinion and the arguments that are, that are made there and then we'll turn to the dissent.
2: Sure, it's notable that uh, Justice Gray, Horace Gray is the author of the majority opinion because of all the people on the Supreme Court at that time, he had the strongest profile in understanding questions of sovereignty. Those were questions that had fascinated him for years um, going back to when he was an attorney and um, when he was a judge in Massachusetts. So he uh, is a key figure here. Uh, And he had written a previous opinion for the U.S. Supreme Court considering a a claim for citizenship by Native American um, uh, Elk who had uh, claimed that because he had left his tribe he was entitled to be considered a, citizenship, a, a citizen. Uh, Gray wrote the majority opinion in that case finding that Elk was not indeed a citizen. Um, uh, he was not entitled to birthright citizenship but he did so by situating Native Americans relationship with the U.S. government in a different way than other kinds of sovereign nations relationship with the American government. So Gray draws this majority opinion for the court and he really roots it in American, uh, going back to British common law. He goes all the way back to Calvin's case. Uh, He traces through this history of um, recognition of birthright citizenship to the period before the 14th Amendment, looking at all of those cases that found that individuals uh, of of, uh, white ancestry who had been born in the United States were indeed entitled to citizenship. And then he reads the 14th Amendment as simply writing this proposition into the Constitution and confirming it, but noting that it had strong roots in, uh, in previous constitutional development and, and recognition. The 14th Amendment then simply codifies this principle, uh, but he looks also at uh, some of the debates around the 14th Amendment and points out that the, the, the brief debate over the Citizenship Clause did acknowledge that the way it was written was going to uh, recognize citizenship for a number of different racial groups that, that had kind of questionable status under American law and in American culture at the time, including the Chinese.
0: Uh, Thanks, Julie. You know, I found it very interesting the way you gave some personality to these 19th century justices that we're not all that familiar with. Justice McKenna was actually at St. Joseph's as a little boy. He doesn't uh, make a decision in this case. He is involved in a lot of these discussions as a legislator uh, and as the attorney general. And so it's funny. I I wish he had voted in this case, but... uh, but he, but he didn't, you you really fill out their personalities and you give us just some idea of where they stood on earlier debates so that we can really understand them. And I, I appreciated that so much, especially what you did with Justice Field. Uh, Justice Gray takes a lot of this same history and weaves it into a dissent. So take us through some of the highlights of the dissent in this case.
2: Well, the dissent we've got uh, here is, um, it's field, right? I'm now confused, anyway, we can check that. Um, The dissent uh, takes a completely different turn rather than looking to that common law history, uh, the dissent uh, doubles down on, let's look at this through the lens of international law and try to understand sovereignty and belonging in that way. Um, And that leads to this conclusion that at least people like Wong Kim Ark are not entitled to birthright citizenship. The problem for the dissent is figuring out a way to ensure, quite frankly, that the Chinese are not going to be able to be considered birthright citizens, but it's not going to undercut the claims to citizenship of the many, many children of white immigrants um, So how how do you kind of square that circle? Uh, One way is just to focus on uh, Wong Kim Ark, on his situation, and to look at the 14th Amendment through that lens. Um, But ultimately, you have to have an explanation for why you're not going to extend citizenship to descendants of Chinese, but you are willing to extend citizenship to uh, children of other parentage and ultimately the dissent comes down to the question of assimilability. Uh, Can these people ever be real citizens? Can they ever be full members of the American polity? And the answer for the dissenters is no, they can't. They're too different. Uh, They cannot really embrace and embody American values. one uh, other quick note about the dissent that may be uh, distressing for some people to hear is that the famous Justice Harlan, uh, author of that famous dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, his passionate defense of equality rights for black Americans, is on the other side in this case. He apparently bought into, at least at this point in his life, the notion that the Chinese were fundamentally unassimilable uh, and he distinguished them sharply from black Americans.
0: I'm so glad you
2: write separately.
0: Pardon me, Julia. I'm so glad you mentioned that because, you know, in rereading Plessy and rereading Harlan's, you know, remarkable descent there, he has the line that says, yeah, we're not talking about the Chinese. Like they're different. You know, we're talking about black Americans. We're talking about people who are American. Uh, Carol.
3: Yeah, um Harlan does have that line in Plessy and seems to think that Congress has the right to exclude, which they have already done, uh the Chinese. And therefore, uh he because he seem seems to think they are unassimilable and has in in many of his decisions, um, was not particularly symp- sympathetic to the Chinese, as I think Gabriel Chin has. Shown, Um, uh, he uh, felt that this was uh, a a, a wrong-headed decision by the court, and it was uh, Justice Fuller, by the way, who penned the um, the dissent. Uh, Field had left the court, and McKenna had replaced him very recently. And I think it was the the the, the that that McKenna had been on the court a very short period of time. I think that's why we think that's why he didn't participate.
0: Yeah, I think he wasn't present for the arguments, but um uh thank no, thanks so much for that for that clarification. Julie, was there anything else on the dissent that you you wanted to underline? I mean, you've done an amazing job in the book of just showing how open the Supreme Court justices are about talking about race. I mean they are they are they are comfortable saying this group is white. This group is not white. This group is not white, but they're an acceptable group. This is a non-white group that is unacceptable. I mean, you have so many quotations that seem shocking that they said it. They didn't just think it. They didn't write around it. They they said it out loud. Um, anyway, is there anything else in the dissent that we should talk about before we but move on?
2: I think it's important to just remember the moment in which all of this is happening. Um, A a good bit of the dissent, I think, is drawn from some of the arguments that are made in the briefs, uh, the briefs that are filed for the United States defending the U.S.'s decision to try to exclude Wong Kim Ark and to deny birthright citizenship to individuals of Chinese ancestry. Um, But this case is happening at a moment when the United States is embarking on a large-scale overseas imperial enterprise. And there are a lot of vexed questions about what that is going to mean for Americans and Americanness. And that I think had to be on the justices' minds as they were grappling with this this case.
3: I think the only other thing I would add is that uh, I think people will be frustrated if they're looking for heroes and villains. Um, you know, I think there are no uh, shining knights in shining armor here. And um, you can see the justices um, sort of embedded in the prejudices of the day. Um, even the justices in the district court who kept hearing these habeas corpuses to the point when <laughs> where they were stripped of their jurisdiction at one point Um, are throwing up their hands and say, you know, this is is a disaster. I mean, they're not sympathetic to the Chinese particularly, but they do think that these cases have to be looked at on an individual basis, and they they have to provide at a minimum procedural due process.
0: And I think due process is actually a character in your book. The due process comes back again and again. And I I love, Carol, that you brought up that part. I thought it was fascinating the way the individual justices said each one of these people has to have a hearing. And uh, and the way you present it throughout the book is that there's this tension. There's the Supreme Court and there's the 14th Amendment. And then there's the Congress and the executive and the laws that they're passing and that they're in tension with each other. And so you have the court's Saying, well, you want to exclude people under these particular criteria? Great. Well, now we're gonna have to look at them in each case. You you can't actually just deport them under a generalized category. And I, and I think that tension is an, is another really fabulous feature of the book, as is, Carol, just to underline what you said, the fact that there are no uh uncomplicated characters in, in the book. You know, you 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 do a, a fabulous job of showing that um and and you spoke to it earlier in terms of the motivations of the attorneys on the one hand there were principles on the other hand there were there were, there was money to be made I mean there and so there was there was I just I just love the complexity and the nuance of the book so Wang King are was one man, and this is his case, but this creates a precedent for everyone. As opposed to the smaller decisions that get made at a district court level, it establishes the precedent, precedent for thousands of Chinese who had been living in the United States and had been uh, had been had been born in the United States. The the book moves on to talk about uh, what you call the intermediate history between. This incredible precedent in 1898 and then what will come later in more battles about uh, who can count. One of the things that you're focused on here is this, as I said, tension between Congress closing borders and creating limits and this case and the uh, principle of birthright citizenship and you're particularly concerned with the extent to which birthright citizenship can actually disrupt white supremacy or whether there's just too many avenues for that to happen. Anyway, once the case is decided, lots happens. People do not just say, oh, well, that's great. So, um, and Carol has, uh, both of you have already alluded to the fact that the Spanish-American War means that Puerto Rico, Guam, uh, the Philippines are are now what are they they're part of the united states but are the people who live in those areas citizens so so take us through a little bit of what happens after the case in terms of uh, <clears throat> uh in terms of who gets what the rea- what the political reaction is to the case and and what these new territories uh mean for
3: for birthright citizenship um let me start with one thing uh, that I want to make sure we under that, that I get across. I It's it's not clear how many people were rendered birthright citizenship, citizens by Wong Kim Ark. A newspaper account at the time said several thousand. What's really curious to me, and uh, I know Amanda Frost is, uh, and Julie too, but I know Amanda Frost is... Uh, trying to track this down. Um, Congress didn't do anything about derivative citizenship. In other words, Wong Kimark as a male U.S. citizen, even though his children were born in China, his children could come claim to be U.S. citizens. Um, the first one, not successfully. Uh, the others, including one who turns out to be a paper son, although we didn't know that, uh, I only recently learned it. Um, and just uh, explain, uh,
0: Carol, what a paper son oh, is for the uninitiated. Uh, basically,
3: basically, you impersonate uh, a, a, a biological son of a birthright citizen, and you memorize everything that the immigration officials could possibly ask you about your father, about growing up, um, so that the answers will match Um there were people who certainly came in this way. There's some evidence that um, it was a way, there were brokers who actually sold paper uh, uh, to uh, sometimes relatives of the original immigrant, but sometimes not, uh, and uh, would coach them on on how to get in. Um, So it turns out that wonky mark's third son admitted in 1960 that he wasn't his son
2: Um, he was related
3: uh uh-huh um so so congress did not ever try apparently to cut off this additional route to u.s citizenship um and the question is why um uh, so I will start with that. Uh, in terms of what happened uh, after uh, Wong Ark, obviously the acquisition of territories and people that didn't look like us uh, raised all sorts of interesting questions about uh, who was white, who was Caucasian. Um, Julie's done a lot of work on uh, whether military service, um, I'll let you talk about that, um, it created a path to citizenship for some of these folks.
2: Yeah, it it was interesting, right? I just, I want to add a little bit more to the the dog that didn't bark. Um, There are occasionally claims that regardless of what the 14th Amendment says and what Juan Kim Mark says, that Congress has the power uh, to limit birthright citizenship or deny it to people who were children of individuals not in the states legally. Um, But again, Congress takes no steps along those lines at this point after Wong Kim Ark. It seems that members of Congress look at the decision and basically say, okay, checkmate. These people are citizens. Uh, There is nothing that we have the power to do about this regardless of the fact that we are going to exercise our legislative power to the fullest extent of its authority to prevent further immigration of individuals of chinese ancestry who do not hold us citizenship so it's that's a really fascinating implication but London susan but,
3: but susan you pointed out the importance of gender and the when women married men who were ineligible for citizenship under us law in the early years of the 20th century they lost their U.S. citizenship, and their children certainly did not become U.S. citizens. So there was an asymmetry uh, here, Um, and obviously you've got uh, children born outside the boundaries of the United States to uh, a man who was a citizen, but a woman who was ineligible for U.S. citizenship. So this is a case where Congress didn't act, but maybe they could have.
2: One area where Congress does act, though, is to try to clear up the problem of how to manage residents of the U.S.'s newly acquired territories. And um, with the Philippines, uh, they go back and forth, what are we going to do, what are we going to do? And finally, they wind up with this legal category of U.S. national uh, so that it is clear that the residents of these territories owe their allegiance to the United States, but they're not going to be entitled to all of the full legal protections uh, and guarantees that are associated with citizenship. And that's still
3: playing out in the court right now in the case of American Samoa. Um, There have been decisions at the district court level and at the uh, uh, circuit court level on this case uh, going in opposite directions. But there are a group of American Samoans who claim that they should be birthright citizens and not American nationals. Uh, And uh, we'll see if the Supreme Court picks up this case. Uh, I think I'm fairly certain what they'll do with it if they do. But um, the American Samoans are among the, the last, I think, to be treated as US nationals. Um, the Americans were in no way interested in giving Filipinos citizenship because they saw them as unruly, uh, apart from whether they were white or not, but they saw them as, as rebellious. Um, whereas the Puerto Ricans did eventually acquire citizenship um, uh, and eventually uh, uh, birthright citizenship.
0: Your section on the insular cases involving Puerto Rico is is fantastic, and I want to thank you for writing it. I have often wanted to assign just a few pages to students on the insular cases uh, that captures the language that was used, the, the manner in which we can hear the court racializing, stereotyping, setting aside, and creating these categories. And it's just it's it is such a well researched and fabulous contribution, just those few pages. So it's terrific. Another theme, sorry, go
2: ahead. We we owe a debt of gratitude to Mm -hmm. Bat Bat Sparrow. uh, He's he's an old friend of mine from from graduate school. School. Yeah,
0: (laughs) We
3: we stood on a lot of people's shoulders for that discussion. I, I can't claim that we did an enormous amount of original research on that. No, no, no. You
0: credit them all. No, what I'm saying is that it's been really hard as somebody who teaches primarily undergraduates. I I don't teach it in in an R1. And so when I'm assigning something, I can't say, why don't you read these three terrific books and these two law review articles? I need somebody like you to, to have done that synthesis. And what I'm saying is, you know, you credit everybody. I mean, it's very, very clear who you're building upon. But but by putting it together, I really think you create a fantastic resource for scholars and for, um, for teachers. A- another theme in this chapter is a concept, well, maybe two concepts that you take from two other scholars. One is semi-citizenship, which is something that Elizabeth Cohn has written about, and also alien citizenship, which is something that May Nye uh, has, has, has written about, in addition, her idea of citizenship nullification. So uh, it's a huge theme. Those are two great scholars. Um, but say a little bit about how in this aftermath of Wong Kim Ark, we, we see this kind of semi-citizenship. We see this kind of citizenship nullification.
2: Yeah. I mean, just because birthright citizenship it, it existed for uh, people of Chinese ancestry, did not mean that their hold on that status was completely secure. Um, As Carol's mentioned, uh, what you get is a documents regime where that citizenship is always uh, a little bit contingent. Um, It is never assumed. um, And people who are not able to establish it are at serious risk from uh the the heavy hand of the administrative state. And
3: and I think uh may Nye um especially is uh interested in the presumption that one is not a citizen on the basis of ethnicity for example. Where were you born? kinds of uh, uh or why don't you go home? uh kinds of uh, assumptions and it, it you know citizenship Benefits are not always uh, equally uh, available. Uh, you say citizen. I mean, after all, in the 19th century, women were, white women were told they were citizens, but they certainly did not have the right to vote, the right, right to make contracts on their own, and many other things.
0: Sit on juries, and that doesn't happen until, until the 20th century. Uh, you know, you mentioned Maynay and actually the C SPAN special on this case, you know, features May Nye, and it features a call-in in which somebody calls in and challenges the pronunciation of her name. And it is a remarkable, my students picked this up with horror, May Nye has to reestablish who she is, again, based on uh appearance as to how it is that she is an American citizen. It's an incredible exchange. She handles it with great dignity, but it's sort of sickening that she has to handle it in the first place, and it just underlines how important this book and her books and the other people who are scholars who are writing on this matter. Now, this chapter is complicated because you then start talking about how we, with the oncoming World War II and the fact that we're fighting on the side of the Chinese Uh, The Exclusion Act, after decades and decades, is repealed. And just to underline for people less familiar, the Chinese are the only ethnic group that was ever uh, excluded by statute specifically. Lots of groups have been um, excluded by process or by uh, more broad legislation, but no group has been targeted as the Chinese were. The Exclusion Act ends. Uh, There's an incredible case that you go through, the Ozawa case, in which a Japanese American is looking at uh, uh, whether or not he can be considered white or not white and excluded. Uh, You contextualize uh, how we would get to Korematsu during the war. But I want to take us to the last chapter, which I, I was kind of stunned by. I thought, okay, now what? And Uh, And sometimes I do a lot of political history on the show. I wonder to myself, how do I explain what the difference is between historians writing about politics and political scientists writing about history? You know, isn't it all the same? Well, this chapter has definitely got like the fingers of political scientists on it because part of what it tries to do is, is be very, very comparative and contextualize this discussion. So let's start with that. How unusual is birthright citizenship? Is it regionally unusual? Is, is this something that only Americans do? Uh, let, let's start there.
3: Well, the president is simply wrong. Um, that is the past president. Uh, America was not the only nation with birthright citizenship, it was among the more generous um, pro- set of provisions. About birthright citizenship. But as we discovered, um, the Western Hemisphere um, tended uh, to have a lot of birthright citizenship provisions. Um, Australia, New Zealand, uh, other settler nations. um, uh, There has been some rewinding of these provisions, some uh, uh step back starting in the eighties, um, in, in some nations, Canada tried, uh, uh, some folks in Canada tried to roll back, uh, but were not successful. So we aren't unique in seeing the reaction against generous birthright citizenship provisions. Um, um, but we, uh, Remain among a, a group of nations that still has birthright citizenship,
0: and you go through in the book uh, really two really interesting cases in Ireland and uh, the Dominican Republic uh, in an effort to, I think, situate American birthright citizenship as as potentially precarious as just because it's in the Constitution, just because it's been accepted, doesn't mean that political forces can't affect that. And Carol, you've already alluded to President, former President Trump and, and what he uh, had tried to do with birthright citizenship. This is an international audience. Not everybody is as familiar. Uh, so just briefly, how, what is it that Trump did how did he use his appointments to try to influence birthright citizenship? It wasn't just about the pronouncements that he was making in speeches.
3: No, uh, he, he did assume or uh, uh, insist that he had the authority uh, unilaterally to end birthright citizenship and claimed that there were some scholars and lawyers who supported him, but they're actually very few. Um, um, John Eastman, who we heard about in connection with the January 6th, uh, insurrection is one of them. Um, what he did, he appointed people like Ken Cuccinelli and, uh, uh, so on to health and human services. Um, there are things that, uh, the executive could do at the margins, um, they, the State Department uh, could do things at the margins. Um, uh, they, they could uh, provide new rules for uh, issuing visas to pregnant women, and did. Um, w- women who might be sufficiently pregnant that they'd give birth during the course of that, that say, 90-day tourist visa um so those are some of the kinds of things they did and of course the border wars uh attempting to stop people from crossing the southern border in part by separating children from their families considering that that would be um enough of a a terror to stop people from coming um Julie, I'll
2: stop. It's it's not specifically related to birthright citizenship, but the Trump administration also poured a lot more resources into um, attempting to strip citizenship from individuals who had naturalized if they could find um, any any hooks to do so.
3: They also um, more vigorously implemented, I guess is the best way to say, an Obama-era rule change at state about um, children born to gay couples through artificial means, artificial reproductive technologies. And if the child was not biologically related to the U.S. citizen, um, they started denying um, citizenship to the child.
0: I also think the last chapter does a really great job of showing, you know, as you as as you have said, that the people who administer these laws can can make decisions at the margins, the kind that the D.C. courts were interested in interrogating earlier in this in the 20th century, and the importance of this. And you also, in the last chapter, I think, underline how it is that. Wong Kim Ark was born in the United States, and his parents were in the country through legal means. They were denied citizenship. They were denied naturalization. I mean, the book is very clear. Naturalization is controlled by the Congress, Mm -hmm. and birthright citizenship comes from the Constitution and sometimes their intention. But in his case, his parents were here through legal means. And the last chapter leaves open this question uh, of whether or not the children born in the United States of undocumented parents could be challenged and the political forces that are gathering behind such a uh, kind of redo or a, an, ad- an additional uh, um, legal push. And I don't know if there's anything else we want to say about that, but I think I mean it's really well, well done in this last chapter.
3: Yeah, well, it's, I mean, we we did look at the possibility that the court could distinguish the Wong case on that ground that the parents were here with permission. Uh, I don't know that the court would take such a route, but it's been discussed. Um, The question of, who's subject to the jurisdiction of the United States is part of the crux of the issue. Uh, Julie, you want to say anything about
2: that? Yeah, I mean, the the theory, right, is that if individuals have come to the United States without documentation, that they are intentionally withholding themselves uh, of being subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, and therefore that relationship doesn't hold, uh, their children should not be considered entitled to citizenship. To that claim, I think we, we would respond, well, let's look at what was going on in the United States at the time that Juan ki was decided. Um, we know that this was the moment in time, that, as May Nye points out, we get the first real construction of illegal immigration on the national level. Uh, So Congress was aware that there were individuals, uh, Chinese individuals mostly at this point, who were in the United States who were not supposed to be in the United States, who were not permitted to be in the United States. And Congress established procedures uh, for removing them and handed these procedures over to the administrative state and enforced that uh, process. Um, But Congress never considered taking that one step further to apply to the children of these individuals or to deny them citizenship. I suspect, given everything else that Congress was doing at the time, that if legislators had believed themselves to have the power to do this, there's no reason they wouldn't have done it. Um, The second point is one uh, that is raised by legal scholar scholar Garrett Epps uh, which is that okay, if you wanna make this argument about people not being um, subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, we certainly subject uh, individuals uh, who are in the United States undocumented to all kinds of other uh, quite tangible and real uh, effects of being subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, they're subject to our laws, Um, There are even some labor regulations that you try to apply on their behalf despite their not having citizenship status. So that argument also, we believe, simply doesn't hold water.
0: Is there anything I haven't asked you? It's a huge book. I really, really recommend it to all to read. People who focus on this period and people who are just interested in citizenship broadly uh, it's just, it has so many different audience, potential audiences. Uh, is there something I haven't asked you
2: about that you love about the book that you want to mention before we close? I enjoyed the book. I enjoyed working with Carol. Um, there's a wonderful conversation on the blog Balkanization about the book. Um, and what's wonderful about it is not just the nice things people have to say about the book, because who doesn't want to hear nice things about their book? Um, but the directions that several of the scholars want to take, the implications of the work that we've done, which uh, suggests to me there's still quite a lot more work and scholarship to be done in this area, both on this historical period and on on the implications and questions going forward about birthright citizenship and its meaning.
3: It does seem to be a very productive area of scholarship right now.
0: We'll have a link to that uh... Uh, on on the, in the show notes. Um, I know you're both very productive scholars. What, uh, and, and this book was written and published. Are you, have you started something new either
3: separately or apart or both? Julie, you first.
2: Uh, I'm working on a, a book project looking at uh, men of color serving in the U.S. military in the Civil War, Spanish-American War, Philippine Conflict, and Philippine War and World War I, and their struggles to either gain fuller recognition of their civic membership, or their struggles to get citizenship itself. Um, little side note to uh, the Wang Kim Ark book is that there were a number of um, Asians who were not citizens of the United States who served in the US Armed Forces in the Spanish-American War, the Philippine War, and World War I. And then they had to struggle to try to get citizenship and ultimately the US Supreme Court ruled that their Asianness was more significant than their status as veterans. So I'm working on pulling that story together and telling it uh, to understand both the way that citizenship and belonging were understood in the American state by policymakers, but also to look at the way that advocates for these groups thought about these questions of service and belonging and the ways that they remembered military service and tried to bring it forward as a pathway to gain recognition.
0: Wow, that sounds great. I can't wait to read it. Carol? Carol?
3: Um, well, I have uh, been working for a long time, and now that I have retired, have got to bring it onto the front burner here, uh, on a book about how organizations in which women dominate uh, uh, during the Progressive Era uh, have pushed the state into new kinds of work. Um, that is they have a different vision, of the political, uh, a broader vision of the political, and what becomes of that vision. So each chapter has forced me to do a different kind of archival research. I have work on women involved in uh, with Native Americans, uh, including uh, ending polygamy and trying to get people to accept their allotments and all this kind of interventionist, policy. um, I'm working on um, right now on uh, black organized black women and uh, daycare. Uh, And there's a chapter on uh, Protestant home mission women and their work with Chinese women and girls in San Francisco. And that I had been working on when Julie and I decided to work on Chinese women. So there are a a number of chapters. I have to get it finished.
0: Well, I look forward to interviewing both of you uh, for both of these terrific books. The one we've been talking about today is American by Birth, Wong Kim Ark and the Battle for Citizenship, published by University Press of Kansas 2021. Uh, Shout out to a brick and mortar store where you would recommend people order or purchase the book from.
2: Uh, the book house of Stuyvesant Plaza, very conveniently located near the University at Albany campus. And I'm going to mention one that I know you know,
3: Susan, the Seminary Cooperative Bookstore in Chicago.
0: Well, I know both because I spent some time in Albany as well. Those are both two fabulous bookstores. Thank you so much for taking the time to and, and, and coming to talk to us on new books and political science.
2: Thank you, Susan. Thank you so much.